What's up? Um, so yeah, in case you didn't know, um, my name is Tony. I'm the worship minister here. Um, it is my job to plan, coordinate, and arrange um, all the songs and the musicians on Sunday mornings. Um, I love this job for a lot of reasons, um, but one of the best things about it is that people tend to be really passionate about music. So there's a lot of different opinions and ideas on how music should be in a church, um, which is really exciting. Um, but it does have some downfalls because one of the worst things about this job is that people tend to be really passionate about music and everybody has a lot of different ideas and opinions on how it should go. Um, but that's okay. So I'm the guy that deals with the whole we need more hymns, we need less hymns, the music needs to be louder, the music needs to be quieter, it needs to be faster, it needs to be slower, or I hate the new songs, can't we just do old songs, or I'm sick of all the old songs, can't we just do new songs? So, all of which are things that I've heard from time to time, but which is fine, which we'll come back to that later on. Um, but a little bit about, more about me. Um, I graduated from here, Platte County, R3, 10 years ago, in 2006. Um, I was a fairly stereotypical band nerd in that I spent most of my time in classes daydreaming about what it would be like to play music professionally for a living. And one of the most appealing aspects of that dream was that I would never have to write another speech or give another oral presentation. Um, so, <laughs> Brady asked me to do this, and I told him there's a reason that I sit back there and don't talk. Um, so if this goes badly, it's his fault. Um, so uh, clearly my life plan didn't work out, but nevertheless, here we are. Um, and I am humbled that Brady would trust me enough to let me stand here um, in front of you and share a bit about my heart um, when it comes to worship here at The Calling and why I do what I do. Um, I do have a few disclaimers before we jump into this. Um, Number one, I believe completely in transparency. So I'm going to be completely honest and vulnerable with you today. Um, I love that this is a place, this is probably the only church that I have ever been in where we do not have to wear masks with each other. Um, and I love that. It may be uncomfortable at times and it might be challenging, um, but I have deep respect for Brady and the other guest speakers who've stood here. Um, and have been transparent, so that's what I'm gonna do, which leads me to disclaimer number two. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. Um, I was a youth minister for a little bit, um, so I've led my fair share of Bible studies and discussions and whatnot with teenagers, but I've never shared like this in front of a congregation. So, any grace you feel you have this morning, if you could throw it my way, I would really appreciate it. Um, Third, the final disclaimer, um, for the sake of this conversation this morning, um, when I say the word worship, I am referring to music specifically as a form of worship. Um, I would just like to make clear that I do not, or that I believe worship is a lifestyle that is 24-7. I do not believe in or agree with the idea that worship is a genre of music or a 15-minute part of a church service. I believe that worship is um, something that is practiced in everything that we do. Um, to be quite honest with you, I believe that the word worship, when applied to anything other than a lifestyle, including my job 
job title. Um, Worship applied to anything other than a lifestyle, I believe, is a marketing term. Um, And I think that the word worship is one of the greatest of all nouns, but it is one of the lamest of all adjectives. Um, Meaning that I think we should treat the word worship with, I believe, more reverence and respect than we tend to give it as a culture. Um, This is an idea that is explored quite a bit in The Purpose Driven Life um, when you read the book. Brady touched on it a lot last week. Um, When you sing, you worship. When you tithe, you're worshiping. When you go to work, you're worshiping. Um, When you play with your kids, you're worshiping, etc., etc., etc. Worship is everything that we do. Again, I say all this just to clarify that I do not believe music is the only way to worship, nor do I believe it is the most important way to worship. Um, It's just one method that we use to worship. For me, music just happens to be the primary way that I worship. Um, So those are all my disclaimers. Let's do this, I guess. Um, So I grew up in church. I am a church kid through and through. I've never really known life completely apart from the church and or God. Um, I've also never known life um, apart from music. It's my thing. It just is. I can't explain it. Um, It's just a gift that was given to me. Um, And it helped that my parents and my older sister have exquisite taste in music. Um, So I fell in love with music at a very, very young age. Um, I taught myself how to play drums when I was in elementary school. I shut myself in my room and I put Fleetwood Mac's Rumors record, anybody? I put that on, thank you. I put that on repeat and I just went for it. Um, And I'm sure my parents really regretted buying me a drum set um, during those times. When I was in middle school, a little bit older, I taught myself how to play guitar by shutting myself in my room and putting Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here record on repeat, (laughs) just going for it. Um, But B.B. King once said that music calms the beast in people. I take that to mean that deep down I have quite the beast in me um, because music just does something to me in here that I can't really explain or articulate. Um, In a lot of ways, I'm your typical artsy person. I tend to be fairly sensitive and impressionable um, when I'm around other men and they're talking about Braveheart and sports and meat and whatever else. Um, I'm usually wondering what like Mozart, what he was going on and he, what was going on in his head when he wrote Figaro or something. Um, So it doesn't really matter what style or genre it is. Um, Music just kind of tends to grab me, pull me in, um, and almost always point me upwards. So I grew up in the 90s, and all through the 90s to the early 2000s, when I was just reaching high school, church music was the same as it had always been for forever, pretty much. It was hymns, organ, piano, worship leader conducting awkwardly from the podium. You guys who grew up in church know what I'm talking about. And then 2003 came, and the modern worship movement exploded here in America. Um, The movement had actually been going on for a while um, in England, which is typically how music happens. We only get it after the Brits have had it for a while, um, and it's always better. But anyway, it came across the pond in 2003 
This is when artists that you've probably heard of, people like Chris Tomlin, Matt Redman, the David Crowder Band, um, all became really well-known people here in America. Well, the church I grew up in was very much the hymn, piano, organ, awkward conductor kind of church. And they, along with every, with a lot of other traditional churches around the country, decided that they were going to start trying a contemporary worship service as a way to keep up with the times and appeal to the younger generation. So I was quickly drafted into the contemporary worship team to play acoustic guitar. Um, my parents might remember this differently from me, but I remember the implementation of this service as a complete and utter disaster. Um, it was like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Um, essentially what it did is it led to an identity crisis within the church, I think, um, and it was not working, really. But the church kept pressing on, and so I started at 14 years old until I was 18 years old, um, trying to fight a battle, essentially, um, that would ultimately end in defeat, for me, at least. Um, the church, as I said, was very steeped in the traditional, so the response to the challenges and awkwardness of doing a contemporary service in a traditional church, their response was to essentially become a copycat of what was culturally successful, um, which meant that there became a bunch of terms and conditions that you had to follow to be on the worship team. Um, you had to play a certain way. The songs had to sound a certain way. Um, they could only have four chords, maybe five if we were feeling a little dangerous. Um, they had to follow a relatively strict verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus format. Um, there wasn't any improvisation. There was no straying from the formula. Um, I'm not sure that I could have articulated, in fact, I know I could not have articulated this then. Um, and I'm not sure I really can now, but it got to a point where just showing up to use your gift to lead worship and honor God was not enough. Now there were all of these rules to abide by, all driven from this idea that we had to mimic something to be successful. And that thing that we were mimicking was not Jesus. Um, aside from church music, um, personally, there was a similar battle happening to me. Um, you see, I had believed my entire life up to this point that Jesus was the only thing that saved me. That was it. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, Jesus tells Peter this at the end of the Gospel of John, when, computer, when Peter is comparing himself to John. Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And I loved that. I held on to that belief as hard and as long as I could. Um, but this was also at a time in our country where being a Christian got very, very, very wrapped up in supporting a specific president and a specific political party, especially in the conservative Southern Baptist Church, 
like the one I was in. Now, I'm not going to get into politics. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being conservative or Baptist or Republican or liberal or Democrat or whatever it is that makes you happy, because there isn't. But what I am saying is that there is something very wrong when Christians make being any one of those things a requirement to follow Jesus, which, is very, which very much became the case in the church circles I was in. I told you I believed in complete transparency, so here it is. As a high schooler, I was never in a place where I felt like I could stand behind those particular ideas. Um, I still don't. But again, I was surrounded by people who made these things, these ideas, a requirement of the faith. Um, I remember one youth group friend saying, um, quote, because I'll never forget this. He said, no reasonable true born-again believer would ever believe anything else unless they were an agent of the devil. And so as the sensitive, impressionable, artsy person that I am, I started thinking, well, I guess I'm not really a follower of Jesus then. So in a relatively short amount of time, I went from being absolutely certain that all I had to do was follow Jesus to having a massive list of rules that I had to follow, things I had to believe, and ways that I had to worship to qualify as a Christian. I think we talk a lot about how God is bigger than everything, and he can go anywhere, and he has peace that passes all understanding. But then either intentionally or unintentionally, I think we apply terms and conditions on being a follower of Jesus. And when we do this, Essentially, what we're saying is that Jesus dying on the cross is not the only thing that saves you. What it says is that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. So I started to think, well, what's the point then? And so since I have been on the receiving end of this particular brand of theology, I can tell you that it crushes people. So I graduated high school. I went to one last Jesus camp. I started college. I told the worship pastor I was quitting. I was gone the following week, and I had no intention of ever going back. So, again, I couldn't have articulated this then, but I decided that since Jesus was not enough, I wanted nothing to do with it. I believed most of my life that Jesus came to fulfill the law so people didn't have to follow all these, all those crazy Levitical rules. He was the fulfillment of all of that. He set us free from all of that. But I felt the church was imposing a new set of Levitical laws on me, putting God in a box, if you will. So it seemed that God wasn't big enough for the world, so I chose the world for a little bit. So fast forward about a year or so, I was taking classes at Penn Valley Community College downtown. Um, I hung out in Westport every day. I loved every second of it. Um, I wasn't doing anything bad. I just wasn't really doing anything, really. I changed my work schedules. I worked at the Y up here. I changed my schedule specifically so I had to work on Sundays, so I didn't, I had an excuse to tell people why I wasn't going to church. But anyway, at the time, I was in a music theory class at Penn Valley, and as a part of that class's requirements, I had to attend a certain number of music 
performances. And I had the opportunity to go see a concert at the Folly Theater downtown. Has anybody ever been to the Folly? It's an old burlesque theater on 12th Street. It's beautiful. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, and the performers at that concert that night was the Moscow State Symphony Orchestra from Russia. They were doing a tour through the states. Um, when the day came, for whatever reason, um, I really did not want to go to this concert. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of pretentious and stuffy sitting through a classical music concert. But I really needed that performance credit, so I dragged myself there. I went in, I got my program, the show started, the orchestra was incredible, um, the music was outstanding. Um, and then the orchestra got to their last piece of music, which was Symphony Number no. 9 by Antony Dvorak which was composed in 1893. Um, it's more commonly known to us as the New World Symphony. Dvorak was a composer from the Czech Republic who spent 1892 to 1895 working in New York City, which is where he composed Symphony Number no. 9, hence the popular title, the New World Symphony. Um, I would bet that a lot of you have probably heard it. Um, I'm actually going to play for you the most popular theme from it, um, which is from the second movement of the piece. Um, it's not going to sound nearly as impressive on a guitar as it sounds when an orchestra is playing it, but... So this is the main theme of the second movement of the song. that before? Yeah? Oh, stop. So, um, have you guys ever had one of those moments where you just 
knew that you were in the presence of something sacred and holy. Um, it doesn't need to have been at a music event. Maybe you were on a hike or reading a book or sitting with someone as they left this world. Um, maybe you were having a conversation with someone and you just had this sense that that was exactly where you needed to be at that moment in time. Um, and listening to the orchestra play that song was one of those moments for me. Um, it was a true worship experience. A few weeks ago, Brady talked about our relative spiritual position to the cross. Um, that moment was a moment that took me from all the way back there to right up here. Um, I know I've said this a lot already, but it's hard to describe. Um, it's almost as if Jesus came down and was staring me in the face as the symphony played. Um, my stomach got weak. My heart started to feel all warm and fuzzy. I was trying not to cry. But I just knew in that moment that God had put me in an old burlesque theater listening to a 123-year-old piece of music just to tell me that all I needed to do was to follow him. It just kind of hit me in that moment. It's like Jesus was just narrating the whole thing to me. And he was saying, be in this moment, listen to this music. It has like a hundred chords in it. It doesn't have any lyrics. It doesn't follow a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus format. And do you think anybody in this room cares what Dvorak's political persuasion was? No. All they care about is that he took this gift that I gave him and turned it into something beautiful. You, Tony, don't need to do anything other than follow him. So it's been nine years since that happened. I'm trying not to get emotional, sorry. Um, you're probably asking yourself, what the crap does any of that have to do with worship at the calling? Um, so as a worship minister, um, Basically, I don't want to, us to be in a place where we have rules that we have to follow when it comes to worshiping through music. Remember the list of things I went through at the beginning, the more hymns, less hymns, more old, more new, etc., whatever list. This may be challenging to hear, but all of those rules that we try to follow corporately or individually, they are all self-imposed. And a lot of times, we just need to get out of the way of ourselves. And looking back at that night at the folly, a big part of that experience was me needing to get out of the way of myself. And when I did that, it led me to a place of worship that I had never experienced up until that moment. Now, I know we all have our preferences and opinions, and there's nothing wrong with having preferences and opinions. Ask me how I feel about Chris Tomlin's music sometime. I'll be more than happy to tell you. Um, I don't like it. Spoiler alert. Um, but the question is, are we going to let those things stand in the way of worshiping God? Now, that doesn't just apply to worshiping through music at all. It applies to everything. How often do we let our own terms and conditions or others' expectations 
stand in the way of us worshiping God? That can be a very hard question to digest, and a lot of times it can be even harder to digest the answer. Um, I realize that putting those things aside can make us very, very, very uncomfortable, um, but complete transparency here. I do not believe that worship in any form is always 100% of the time supposed to make us comfortable. And I feel like a lot of people, they want to go to church and they want to feel comfortable, and that's great. Um, But I do not believe that worship is always supposed to make you feel that way. I say this because I've read a lot of different opinions, um, and I've asked a lot of people what their definition of worship is. And a common answer that you get, even if you Google this, common answer you're going to get is worship is being led into the presence of God. So I'd like to run with that definition for a second. Um, And I'm going to nutshell a few Bible passages here um, for, of people who were in the Bible led directly into the presence of God. Um, I'll give references if you want to look them up later. Um, but first, there was Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33, who said to God, please show me your glory. And God's response to him was, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And so God said, go stand behind that rock, and you can see just kind of the tail end of me as you pass by. And then there's Elijah in 1 Kings 19, who had just come off of a victory over the false prophets of Baal, And so he goes up onto a mountain, and he'd just gone through this trial, and he says, I've had enough, Lord. Let me die. God tells him the same thing he told Moses. I will come and pass by you. Then the Bible says a strong wind came, strong enough to break the mountains apart, but God was not in the wind. Then there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. The Bible says after the fire, there was complete silence. And God was in the sound of silence. That can work as a Simon and Garfunkel reference if you need it to. But how many times do we just sit in silence? I don't know about you, but for me, it is ridiculously uncomfortable. But that is where God was. Lastly, we have Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who gets taken directly into the throne room, and an angel burns his lips with coals. We could continue. There are several examples of similar things in the Old and New Testament, um, like Paul being blinded literally because he saw Jesus. I would argue that in all of these situations, the characters were very tense and uncomfortable. You see, these are the things that run through my head every week um, as I'm putting a set of music together for a Sunday morning. Um, I've been in a place where formula is adhered to, where terms and conditions and expectations and comfort take precedence. And I want the calling to be a place where we can all experience freedom 
and worship together. Um, so here's my challenge to you. Um, worship team people, you can come up. It's kind of awkward for me to say that. But, uh, so here's my challenge to you. Next time you find yourself applying a rule or restriction on yours or somebody else's lifestyle of worship, let it go. Be rid of it. Maybe that new song that you've never heard before and you don't want to sing because you don't know the words, maybe it will allow you to see God in a way you've never seen him and maybe um, allow you to express your love to him in a new way. Maybe that old hymn that you have bad memories of as a child will be reinvented and you can have a deep respect and reverence for the traditions and the pillars of faith that sung those words before we did. I say that because that's very true of me. So may you, me, all of us, be free from our change, our terms and conditions, others' expectations and judgments. May we be uncomfortable together. And may we never put God into a box. Thank you, guys.